Now that we know that we were created in the image of God, <coughs> what does it mean to be a biblical woman, and how does that affect our community with everybody else? So we're going to turn our gaze towards the church and look at how God created us as women, the bride of Christ as the church, and um, we specifically the woman, the women, and what that looks like for us. So what does it mean to be a biblical woman? How do we interact with one another? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. So how do we do that if we don't even know who we should be? Who is yourself? And we live in a world with a thousand definitions of what women should be doing, could be doing, how to raise your daughters, encourage our friends, live among the women of this world. How do we do those things and then still belong to Christ? So I grew up in the culture of when like Proverbs 31 was cross-stitched on every single pillow and it was on every t-shirt. Um, it was touted as the master design for a woman. And I even had dreams of being in a girl band that I was going to call Far Above Rubies and it was going to be really awesome. It was. Um, DC Talk saying about the Proverbs 31 woman. I don't know if you guys remember DC Talk. Oh, yeah. Um, and don't get me wrong, she's a beautiful woman, but she's a proverb. She's not a promise. So I fear that our definition of womanhood has been limited down to our phones and what we see online and we start defining ourselves based upon things we're seeing there or we measure ourselves <coughs> against things we're seeing other people are doing. We don't know what womanhood should look like in our homes, in our workplaces, in our marriages, in our churches. And as Christian women, we don't always know what we should be doing if we're measuring up at all but we really know how to judge another woman on whether or not she's doing it. So we cast judgments on each other on how we dress, date, marry, parent, how we age. It doesn't stop. We add to God's design through lists and competition, ideals, through books, through Instagram, and then we measure one another based on standards that really we're kind of creating as we go along. And Women aren't just harsh to women in general. We can agree that women are harsh on women. But we're brutal to each other in the church because we call it all under the name of God or love or whatever. Um, but it's really because I think we don't know what womanhood is supposed to look like. How do we know if we're thriving as a biblical woman? The definition of woman has changed so much in the last <coughs> 70 years, let alone the last thousands of years. So we might not say this out loud, but this is kind of what we think. The modern biblical woman can be measured by how many photos she posts of her Bible, or how much her husband loves her, or how well her kids are doing, or how successful she is, or how skinny she is. Or maybe we might think, well, her husband posted a photo of her on her birthday. My husband just posts about football, and he doesn't even notice what I post on Instagram, so she's making it happen. Or she posts her new workout program in her green smoothie, and I can't remember the last time I posted with the intention of actually working out. <laughs> So maybe it's not online, maybe we do this in person. So maybe it's the, the woman you see on Sunday who just seems perfect and she has it all together and like her husband puts his arm around her during church and you're like, that, maybe that's my target, that's my goal. And we know that our lives aren't full of perfect stories or perfect marriages or perfect workplaces or all those things or your bank account is empty but it seems like she's getting everything done so maybe she's the goal. And then we start to think, I'm not measuring up. We measure and compare and then really start devouring each other before we even begin our days. 
We know what the gospel is for our hearts, but we have amnesia when it comes to our identity. Um, so we have wandered in many directions, and quite frankly, we're exhausted. When we look to the world, <coughs> it's, it's not satisfying us. We wander around on our phones, and we look for affirmation there, for acceptance there, identity, a voice, a brand, or whatever you want to call it. So we're going to take a quick look at woman's original design, because I think it's really a fruitless conversation to ask, what is a biblical woman, without going back to original design? So until we know who we are created to be, we won't know how we should be as a creation. So if you're following along with your Bibles, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 20. Genesis chapter 2, 20. Are you pulling that up? The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so we have this beautiful story of how God created woman. This story ends with they were both naked and were not ashamed. This is good. They are at a good place. So let's talk about who woman is. She's created in the image of God. We talked about this a little bit earlier. I think this is important because woman isn't the idea of man. She's the idea of God. She's made in the image of God. Just like man, they're both designed by God's creative originality. I think this is important because for a long time, men in this world have wanted to tell women who they should be. And then women respond because we want to redefine who men have said that we should be. And that tug, that tug of war goes back and forth, good or bad, and a lot of men have voice what they think we should be. But men did not create us. They do not get to define us. But also, we don't get to define ourselves. That is the work of God. We're not the property of men or mankind. And because we were made in his image, like I said earlier, we are fully complete in him. So we don't need marriage to be complete. We don't need to have children to be complete. Those things don't make you fully a woman. Okay. You are fully a woman by nature of being made by a fully whole God who created you in his fully whole image. So you're never half of a person or an almost woman or a woman with some caveats. You are fully created by God in the image of God, complete and good as a woman. Eve is created out of Adam's side, but this doesn't mean that she's his sidekick. This humbles Adam. God places him under a deep sleep and removes a piece of his body and makes him vulnerable to this new creation. Matthew Henry said, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. Eve walks with God. She's alongside of Adam given full liberty to enjoy the garden and all of the implications of the garden. Eve is designed differently 
physically, hormonally, emotionally. This means that she has different physical functions, different emotions, different reactions, and thought processes. That, this is important, they are not inherently bad or dismissive. They are what make her a woman. She doesn't have to apologize for feeling the emotions and operating and being a whole, a whole woman. She's created second, and she's called Ezra Connecto. That term helper is Ezra Connecto. We don't see her created as a sidekick or a buddy or a friend or an assistant. She's created as an equal but opposite power to Adam, a helper for the role that God has placed on mankind to do God's work. Genesis 2.18 says, Woman was made to be a helper for man. And that word helper, it's not the only time that it appears in the Old Testament, so we're going to look at it. That term, Ezer Kenenko, helper at eye level. It means an equal but strong ally. The word connecto means in front of, parallel, and opposite to, almost like yin and yang, though that's obviously not scripture, it's just a visual image. It's a powerful force of equal match. So this isn't men is better, and then here comes his helper, the woman, as his like little buddy. It's not Batman and Robin. It's not men are fully loaded at 100% and women come in at 80%. It's not men swinging the hammer and working up a sweat and women are there like wiping their brows. Men don't have supreme importance. Instead, it's that woman is designed and equipped to work with man and she is a helper suitable for the work that must be done together. So the work that he is called to now becomes the work that she is called to as well. It wasn't like God created Adam and it was like mostly good but it just needed something cute or pretty. So God isn't like, this, you know what this needs? This just needs a little feminine touch. Like, that's not what it was. God said, it's not good. It's just not good. And so he created woman. And Ezra Connecto cannot be a derogatory thing. As soon as it becomes lesser than or inferior than, the scripture is not understood. In fact, God himself is referred to as Ezra in scripture. It appears 21 times in the Old Testament. When woman is created when Israel needs help in battle, and then to God as Israel's helper in war or aid. So I'm going to read you some examples of where it appears in Scripture. Deuteronomy 33:26. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, Ezer, through the skies in his majesty. Deuteronomy 33:29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, Ezer, and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Psalm 22. May he send you help, Ezer, from the sanctuary, and give you support from Zion. Psalm 33:20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, Ezer, and our shield. Psalm 121:2. My Ezer, my help, comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. So women are called to serve alongside of our brothers as warriors, as image bearers, and even bearing the quality of God, the Ezer, that he gave us to bear. God gave us parts of himself that he did not give men. So we carry <coughs> that role of Ezer in the kingdom. Equals eye to eye to help and serve, a power to aid and support the men to complement. And so we see that woman was designed to work with man. 
She was not designed to be independent of man, but interdependent with man to fulfill God's design for creation. Culture will say that we don't need men or that we could do this so much better than those silly men. But that's just Genesis 3 rearing its ugly head in our relationships that we can lord over men and have power over men. <coughs> so we don't need a man to be happy or successful. But we need biblical men fulfilling the purpose of this calling so that we also can fulfill God's great design for earth. We need them because they need us too. That's how it works. We need healthy biblical men and women operating together. I use this example in my church, and so hopefully you guys understand this, but how, I, I even got here today, Madeline, you were watching Wonder Woman. How many of you guys have seen Wonder Woman? Have you seen that movie? Okay. So there's this scene in Wonder Woman, Madeline will understand this. There's this <laughs> scene in Wonder Woman where she is come there at a battlefield and all the men are in the trenches. And I honestly think if you haven't seen Wonder Woman, side note, I do think it's one of the most beautiful pictures of biblical complementarianism that I've ever seen. Because Wonder Woman is a fully woman warrior. She coos at babies, but she's carrying a sword and shield. Like she doesn't apologize for her femininity, but she's strong and she's confident in who she is as a woman. But there's a scene where there's a battle going on, and she goes onto the battlefield, and she takes on the fire from the enemy camp. And she has her shield out, and the fire is coming on her nonstop. And because of this, it allows the men who she's with to cross the battlefield. And there's this moment where they make eye contact, and she's unfazed and strong in the face of battle, but it allows for the men to do the thing that they're supposed to do as well. And so I think that's what we should be looking like. We're unfazed strong in our calling as women, knowing what we're called to do, but not at the cost of men, but to support biblical men to do the thing they're supposed to do as well. Eve is called to work alongside man in the garden. This is a wild, untamed, uncultivated piece of earth, and God puts two people in it and says, make this place home. It's a place of chaos and noise of animals, smells, food, and wild, fruitful vegetation. And God <coughs> says, bring order to this. Make this beautiful. Tame the wild. Cultivate life. Make this home. And God tells them to fill the earth. This is a call to enjoy one another, but also a call to lay down their lives for other people. And then something happens. The serpent shows up. And here we see the fallout of sin. It's not just Eve screwing up and Adam being mindless, but this is the wrecking ball of sin. We talked about this earlier, but we see in Genesis 3 that she sees three things in the tree. She sees that it's good for food, delightful to look at, and desirable to make one wise. She sees that it's good for food. Isn't everything else in the garden good for food? But suddenly Eve thinks, maybe God didn't actually give me the best. She says that it's delightful to look at. Isn't everything else in creation delightful to look at? Suddenly, this tree is the most beautiful thing. Beware when the thing you shouldn't have suddenly becomes the most beautiful thing that you've ever set your eyes on. And then it's desirable to make one wise. She didn't trust God's good law for her. Eve, led by doubts, by emotions first, led to believe the law wasn't good, wasn't there for her good. So she sins, Adam sins, and God shows up. Who does he call out to first? But the man. 
So imagine Eve, someone else is being called to the table for her sin. She knows she did wrong, and who does God call to first? But Adam. And what does Adam say in Genesis 3.12? The man says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. So we go from a song, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, to this in a matter of verses. John MacArthur says it like this. I went to sleep single and woke up married. You pick my wife. What do you expect out of me? <laughs> she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. That's what he says. And he blames Eve in some sense, rightly so, but God came to him first because Adam is responsible. And what does he do? He dodges responsibility. He points at her. He abdicates it and says, I'm not going to do that. And so Genesis 3.13, the Lord God asked the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So now Eve is under the full weight of God's wrath because she believed the lie. And we see when she's cursed that the deceiver isn't far off. He's right there. So I can only imagine the lies that he's whispering to her at this point. She wasn't good enough before. She's definitely not good enough now. Her labor pains are intensified. The very thing she is called to do, which be mindful she's still called to do, will now be a source of pain and agony to bring life. She will suffer. Her desire will be for her husband, which actually isn't a good thing. This is the same term of when God says to Cain, sin's desire is for you. That's desire that wants to devour you and take you out. So her desire for her husband is not suddenly romance for her husband. Her desire for her husband is, I want to take him out. I want to be more powerful than him. Community is broken like that. And here is where the entire crux of creation hinges. God curses, but he promises. Eve is the first to hear the promise of Christ, and she doesn't even know it. God sees their sin and covers them. He doesn't let her stay in shame. He starts to cover immediately. And so the story begins. And it's important to note that as they leave the garden, God doesn't leave them. They're kicked out of their home. They're the first refugees, if you will, sent away from the promise, distanced from their God. She has children, pain, tears, continual reminders of the curse in her own flesh and blood. But you know she must be wondering. God said my offspring would crush the serpent. So I have some sons. Are they going to do it? Are they the ones who are going to crush the serpent? And then Cain murders Abel. <coughs> And I want you to imagine Eve. Picture her graveside. The first murder, possibly the first human death that she's seen. And I have no doubt that Eve carried the guilt of that. This is the mind of a mother that sits at a graveside, or even when there's conflict or struggle with their kids, and she asks, what could I have done differently? Where did I go wrong? And yet, Eve knows this is the sin that she made affecting her own children. Imagine her, a woman, weeping at the graveside of her son. The child she screamed to bring into this world is now dead in the earth. Imagine the emptiness of this woman, the echoing wail of a mother, and yet you can almost feel the earth rumbling. He is coming. Genesis 3.15, he is coming. One day, a woman will weep at her son's graveside. The death of her son, caused by the sins of others, 
Just like the first Adam, his side is pierced and his flesh is ripped. His blood cries out from the ground. He doesn't just say it is good, he says even more, it is finished. So we see over the course of the entire Old Testament, women now are marginalized, objectified, again and again. We see this happen, but there's a thread of gold. Whenever God shows up, he lifts women. He sees them and protects them, despite the world's attempt to define them, shape them, and tell them how they should live. There's a continual movement to restore women. And even in scripture, women compete against one another. They taunt one another. Not only is the culture brutal to them, but the women are brutal to each other. But God's plan has been set in motion. He uses women to name him. He uses women to preserve his people. He uses women to prophesy. He uses women to interpret scripture, to carry on the lineage when men kept failing, women redeemed the lineage. And then Jesus shows up through a woman. The curse of pain and childbirth that you bore eventually brings about the cure. So it should not be missed by you that God places women as center characters in his story. We are not the side pieces. We are not the shouting, angry, emotional ones that need to go chill out somewhere. We're warriors. We're strong. We're loved and we're seen. <coughs> and then when Christ walks on earth, we see how he sees women in a way that reveals how God values women. So Jesus shows up and he talks to women directly. He teaches them directly as, dis as a disciple. He listens to their anger and their fears without rolling his eyes. And then we see the beauty of God's story making all sad things come untrue. Women keep watch during his crucifixion, where once a woman stood and watched the world plunge into darkness because of her choice and stood at the graveside of her son knowing it was her fault, here we see another woman again standing at the graveside of her son. And then when all the men left and everyone scattered, who stayed? But the women. And then in a garden, he meets woman first. Where a woman fell and sinned, he meets her. Where Eve wept and God walked in the garden, he walks in the garden again to find the woman. He sends her to tell the disciples. In a time when a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in court, he sends her. He sends the one who was deceived with the truth. The perfect Adam, the second Adam, will crush the head of Satan once and for all, silencing the serpent. And as R.C. Sproul Jr. said, Adam said, don't blame me, blame my wife. But the second Adam shows up and says, don't blame my wife, blame me. And when he resurrects, he's back in the garden, meeting a woman in the cool of the day. So Christ comes to redeem that which Eve could not get right. We are the children of Eve. We're prone to be led astray, prone to think that the gifts God has given us aren't good enough the most likely to abdicate responsibility or fight for some title or privilege that isn't ours. But woman matters, and not as an afterthought in the kingdom, but as a vital, alive, passionate, vocal, caring, intelligent member of the church. So, if Christ came to redeem original design, how does this practically affect us today in our day-to-day -day life? Tomorrow we're going to spend some time looking practically at what community looks like 
in the home, what it looks like in hospitality, what it looks like in discipleship in the church. But I want to talk about what it looks like to be a confident woman in our identity with God who designed us and created us. So for the gospel, we can let him redeem Ezra Konegdo in us. Through his strength, you are designed to be a warrior. By his strength, you are the lightning to the thunder. You are the harmony to the melody. You can practically live out the work of the gospel in the church. You can be a warrior, fully woman, fully whole, and a needed ally in the church. You can push back the darkness through setting your table and invite people who don't look like you or who don't think like you or dream like you. One thing that I've seen in ministry is that women can move into spaces that men cannot go. Women can sit and have conversations that men can't have. And that's not an indictment on men. That's because God has called us to serve a specific role in the church. So there's times at church that the guys will be in a situation caring for someone, and they're like, I don't know how to get past this wall. And they invite me in. And because it's a woman or a sister or a specific situation in the marriage, I'm able to move into a space and help them do the work that we need to do together. And as women, you can speak into your brother's lives in ways that other men can't. You're going to see things, feel things, pick up on things that other men don't see. We have plenty of times in ministry at church when the guys will be talking about a marriage and saying, I don't understand what's going on. Why is this happening in the marriage? Andrea, what's going on here? And I say, have you considered this? And I give a perspective. And this isn't me being awesome. This is just the other part. They need the other part. And they're we shine lights on it from both sides, and God uses that to reveal what he's doing. As a woman, you're called to cultivate life. This isn't just your children. This is an inherent nature that you have in this world, to be a life giver, to bring order, to tend to your world. And you can do this with freedom and with joy, knowing that no matter how small or insignificant these little things may be, they matter. We're, we're free to do the faithful work of our ordinary lives. <coughs> so, are you doing laundry at home? Are there piles of laundry? Fold the laundry. Bring order to chaos. Are you doing dishes? Bring order to chaos. Cultivate beauty. Are you making beds? You're bringing peace and cultivating a place of beauty in life. How about in the workplace? Is there chaos? Can you come in and bring peace and bring order? Can you change the culture and temperature of your office by breathing beauty and life into a dead space. Maybe through friendships, cooking meals, hosting, hospitality, bringing life where there's darkness. We can also bring order to chaos online, where really the primary demographic is women, where competition and negativity thrive. We can harness the power of the tools that we have to be cultivators of beauty and truth in the world that we live in. So we can cultivate life through the things that we post, the things that we read, what we glean, how we respond to people. And we can give life through beauty, through reminders of grace, through encouragement. These aren't empty things. But in the same breath, <laughs> I warned that as Eve was tempted with immediate satisfaction and immediate joy in the tree and becoming wise through the tree, we have the same temptation at our fingertips every single day. We have immediate affirmation. 
immediate information. And it's a cheap imitation of what we actually find in Christ and his word. So sometimes the way we cultivate life in our worlds means putting the phone away. It means saying no to a good tool because it's not actually useful for what we need in that moment. Sometimes in order to bring order to the chaos, we need to start with the chaos in our own heads and hearts first. If we are full of chaos, if we are full of bad news and headlines and competition and gossip and feeling like we're falling short or she's falling short, we're not tending the gardens of our hearts. We're letting the weeds grow wild. And those things seep into your homes. They seep into your relationships, your workplaces, your practices. So in order to bring and cultivate life here, everywhere else, we need to start here. We are responsible for tending the gardens of our own mind and heart. The knowledge of the tree, like Eve thought it was her source, we have to know that isn't our source. God's law and God's word is our source, like we talked about earlier. Eve took the law that she heard from Adam and reiterated it to the serpent. We do not need to have the Bible simply reiterated from men. You must read the Bible for yourself. You must know what God says to you for yourself. We have to know what it says, not wing it. Don't read it to post it on Instagram and then close your Bible to scroll through the feed. <laughs> Or study a word and then do like a doodle about it and then intentionally choose to post it so that people know that you're definitely reading your Bible that day. We want to do it for our own hearts and our own mind and soul. When Eve was met by the serpent, she took the fruit and sin entered the world. She was led away from a lack of truth in her heart. We need to become like the trees whose roots go deep and the branches reach far. And then we can look to the sisters in our church, freed of earthly demands, and enter into true friendship with each other. Jesus modeled friendship with his disciples in a way that was simple but life-changing. They shared meals. They traveled. He corrected them. He pursued them. He invited them into his inner thoughts and circle, and he loved them dearly. Do you love the sisters of your church dearly? Are you eager to see them thriving and filled with joy? Do you practice the one another's toward one another? Or are you ever tempted to put your best foot forward for them? Are you perhaps giving a polite smile up front, but you're kind of judging her and measuring and keeping track of how you would do things differently if you were her? But do, or do you love each other sincerely? Because you can't do both. Eve was created for better things, and the gold thread of redemption for women all throughout the Old and New Testament shows us that God has better for us than the reputation we've earned of being a gender filled with infighting, jealousy, comparison, and gossip. We know how to fake it, because then we project that on others. We assume they're faking it. But we know all of our own flaws, and we see ourselves up close and our wrinkles, so we just look at her and say, she, she has no idea what I've been through. If you are a woman who knows her God, knows her design, knows the word of God, not just from others, but for yourself, and fixes her eyes steadfast on the king, who gives her both strength and dignity, <coughs> the world and our churches will know the difference. 
we see these women in scripture, from the Hebrew midwives, to Sarah, to Hagar, Hannah, Ruth, to Rahab, to Mar, Deborah, to Mary, the mother of Christ, who when she's chosen, we see her mouth spill scripture and truth, anchored in the hope of her God. We can follow the line through the New Testament, Mary, Martha, Phoebe, Lydia, Junia. We see women who pushed back against darkness, confidently walked where they were called, sinned and sought repentance, and ultimately knew the God of the Bible was the God of their own, was their own God. They were Ezer Konegdo in action. They helped the men, called out the sin they saw in men, warred against injustice, protected the marginalized, corrected errors, raised their families, studied scripture at riversides, spoke the truth in public, spread the gospel in their towns, discipled the church. These are not small, mindless, mediocre women. They're not in competition with one another. They have their eyes on the king and are confident in their identity as daughters with a purpose. And so then we can take that model and we can push back darkness in our homes and in the hearts we interact with daily. We can bring order to the chaos in our lives, whether that's through folding a pile of laundry or organizing meetings at our job. We can read the word and know the word and walk with God as Eve did. We can know that the things we look at on our phones or read perfect stories or romantic and perfect movies, things that seem good for food or desirable to the eyes and will make us wise, they aren't always what they seem. That's not the path home, we can bring the real beauty, real harmony, real redemption, real flavor, strength and laughter and color to a black and white world. This is the calling of a woman, and it's a good thing. We get to be women who weep at gravesides, who stand watch through dark nights, coo at small babies, and then rescue them through blood and water. We get to be women who can be like Hagar in scripture and call God by his name. We get to serve alongside of our brothers and honor them for the things that the Lord has called them to do in the same way that we hope they do for us. So this is how we play a part in redeeming original design. Become the distant echo of a woman without shame. Women who love each other with a love that goes beyond what it deserves. Women who love our God and love sisters in the church with a love that doesn't have an exit strategy. We can be loyal to one another as sisters.